You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Ralph Macchio, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. We are again talking about Daredevil. This time it's episode 13B, uh, covering the second half of the Daredevil epic collection called A Touch of Typhoid. This is issues from a period of Daredevil covering uh, 1988 to 1989. And I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I'm Adam Chabin, your Daredevil co-host. Adam, what issues are we talking about in today's episode? I believe we're talking about issues uh, 261 to 270. Yeah, so this is the back half, like I said before, of this one epic collection. Boy, these two halves of these books sure are different in contrast, aren't they? I don't think they could be more different if you tried. <laughs> I was so surprised. I, I I was really excited after reading the first half of this book and recording our episode because I was quite compelled with the way Anne Nascenti is writing and the way that she has crafted the uh, the predicament that that Daredevil is in, um, especially with Typhoid. Love the character. And then we do this like about face where Daredevil goes off on his own and he's like not in his right mind. And there's all of this. I mean, I know a lot of it's because of the Inferno uh, tie-in issues. Um, but yeah, there's all this Mephisto stuff and demon stuff. And it's like, wow, this is so different. And I was a little disappointed but at the same time, it's still, I found it oddly compelling. And I kept wanting to read the next issue because I'm like, where the heck is this going? It just seems to be meandering right now. Mm-hmm. It, it only gets weirder after this, trust me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, okay, well, we don't need to worry about talking about what happened in the last issue because I'm hoping that people who are reading this book have already read the first half and don't, they don't need to be caught up. But I do have some listener comments. Uh I asked on Facebook for people to give thoughts about this book, and we had a lot of comments, and we said some of them in the last episode, but I'm going to say some more of them in this episode here. So Sean says, I remember w- when this was being published, and it got a lot of hype at the comic stores and among the bullpen bulletins. I didn't read it at the time, only so much money for a 14-year-old. I really enjoyed it as an adult. The stories are tight. The supporting characters are great. The Punisher crossover is one of my favorite stories due to the dual nature. High quality stuff that lives up to its reputation a great update continuation update slash continuation of the direction that miller had taken daredevil earlier in the decade and i do think i agree with that there is uh, a lot of parallels to what miller was trying to accomplish in his run with what Na- what Anne Nascenti is doing here, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Travis says this is a childhood Daredevil run for him. From what I remember, I loved it. I need to go reread this, as I think I missed an issue or two collecting comics off of the drugstore spinner rack. Can you imagine that? I didn't ever collect comics off of the drugstore spinner rack. There were already comic book stores in existence in the late 80s when I started. Uh, actually, well, i got to say, like, I don't think I went to my first comic book store until I was like 16 years old. Like, I, I, I don't think they 
I knew that they were a thing. Like I would see comics at my shopper's drug mart, at my like, you know, grocery store, spinner rack. And that's how I, gen- and, and at my convenience store, that's generally how I, and we're about the same age. I was born in 83. And I, that's just how I interacted with comics. I just didn't know that there was a comic book store. My parents would not have taken me to something like that in and of themselves. And it wasn't until I was probably, I want to say like maybe 13, 14, that I actually discovered a comic book store and then started to, you know, started to have a little bit more regularity and being able to pick up stuff. Because before that, I was not getting direct edition stuff. I was getting newsstand stuff. That's really interesting. Now, I remember... Uh, I, of course, I do remember seeing them in the in the stores, in, like uh, corner stores and whatnot. But that's not where I bought them. Uh, I got into comics through the Marvel Universe trading cards mm-hmm. because that's how like the kids around they were collecting those, and I would ask them, "Where do you get these cards?" And so they told me of a local comic book store where you could get you know sports cards and whatever. That's where they got the Marvel cards. So I went there, and all of a sudden, there's comic books, and I have like access to all of these things that I could more than I could possibly imagine as a as a as a nine or ten year old or however old I was, but yeah, that's interesting how just your location I think dictates whether or not you were at a drugstore or a comic book store. Oh, for sure. Well, and obviously a combination of parents as well. I mean, if your parents are going to take you to a comic book store, or they have of that kind of mind, like you know, my son's been to comic book stores before. He's been exposed to comics since <laughs> True. He was born. Yes, same with so my like, children. <laughs> for him, it's just like. Yeah, like, it's just kind of like, yeah, that's comics. Like, that's not very difficult. Whereas there's other kids whose parents don't like comics, don't read comics, and they'll probably barely ever see comics, and maybe they'll see some of the characters here and there, but they won't have the same type of connection or really understand much about it. That's true, yeah. My parents didn't know anything about it either, so they, in those early days, drove. But then they got pretty confident in letting me ride my bike over to the store um, once I got a little bit older. So I I would do the regular Wednesday bike ride over to the comic book store. (laughs) I remember going to a comic book store on a Wednesday and being late for class and my teacher is really pissed at me he's like you know why are we late and so I wrote up this whole like thing I'm like I'm really sorry I, ha- I can't go after school I got to pick up my sister from school from daycare or from school so I can't go after school it's the only time I can go is at lunch and I'm really sorry to miss my bus all this stuff and he was like okay you're fine <laughs> that's funny <laughs> he showed it to my parents though he's like yeah like and they were like he was late and I'm like well obviously I didn't tell them that I got out of being in trouble <laughs> Okay, so some more comments here. Craig Woods says, Honestly, my favorite era of Daredevil. This and the next volume, Heart of Darkness, are both bursting with great stuff. Miller fans hate to hear it, but Nascenti's take on the character has a complexity beyond anything Frank did with him, really shaking up his and the reader's perception upon himself as a hero without ever losing a grip on the straight-ahead action content. Interesting. Okay. Uh, we're going to probably talk a little bit about that uh, later on toward the end of these issues, because that those are some of the things that I think I felt a little bit um, in those later issues of this volume. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also goes on to say, Mary was a shot in the arm when she turned up, equal parts exciting, scary, alluring, and funny, and she soon becomes a more powerful reflection of Matt's guilt than Electra ever was, acting as a torturous bridge between his private and public weakness. Although I agree, looking back, there is less of Matt lawyering in this period than I would like. Uh, and then he also says, Ramita Jr.'s art in this era is love it or hate it stuff, but the jagged scratchiness of his line work is the perfect medium for exploring both Matt and Mary's fractured psyches. That's an interesting comment. And imbuing even the most mundane settings with a sense of menace. Mm. Uh, okay, let's see. Oh, man, there's so many comments here. I don't want to read all of these. Uh, let's see. Efrain says, uh, gorgeous art by John Romita Jr. Liked his style more than uh, The Man Without Fear. That's the mini series. Really? Yeah. 
feels less polished, but fresher. It's obvious that Nascenti is less amused by the superhero aspect of the book than the real personal drama. Nevertheless, I really liked his take on the char- her take on the character. Uh, it's somewhat entertaining to see Matt's sinful fall at the hands of Typhoid Mary. And the Inferno tie-ins had a surreal feel that I really enjoyed. Um, carrying on, Frank says, I, f- I really feel there's some really strong stories in this book. The two-parter with Punisher being one of the high moments. The art is phenomenal. Really feels like Ramita Jr. evolved hugely during his stay on DD. I would agree with that. Um, my main complaint is that I wish I had seen more Daredevil as a hero stories, and I was mm-hmm. not uh, into another fall from grace moment. I really enjoy Matt the lawyer, and there were some interesting environment ideas at the beginning of the book that I wish we had seen developed more. Yeah, she kind of just leaves all of that behind all of a sudden. Yeah. Uh, Timothy says, I really enjoyed Typhoid's storyline. Her victory over Daredevil was awesome. I think this was the first hero versus villain gauntlet I read where the hero really lost. And really, after Matt cheated on Karen, I wasn't too sympathetic to his loss. And this was uh, knowing how Karen sold him out during Born Again. Nascenti definitely gave Matt feet of clay and put him through the ringer. Great art, great writing, and interesting villains are in this book. Yeah, so there you go. Totally, um, I think I we, we just kind of received all very positive comments, a few little nitpicky things, but for the most part, everybody seems to really like this run, and it's great that it's being collected in the Epic Collections now. I mean, I'll have some comments. Okay, good. <laughs> Well, let's start our story here. Uh, we begin our our story with, um, let's see here, issue number Meltdown. 261, Meltdown, yeah, with the Human Torch. Now, we saw Human Torch appear in a couple of panels in uh, a previous issue, just popping by. He saw Daredevil, it looked like everything was under control with w- what was going on with him, so he takes off. But now, Daredevil's gone. This issue, some time has passed because at the very beginning, Karen, like Daredevil has been gone long enough that Karen doesn't know where he is. So um, so now she's enlisted Johnny Storm to try and help find Daredevil. Uh, this was a kind of an interesting, refreshing uh, issue, I think, because Johnny just brings more humor in general to the book. Daredevil's more of a serious character, and Johnny's not. So it was kind of nice just to get a little bit more levity, especially after the really heavy double-sized issue that we just ended with. Mm-hmm. I do feel like uh, something about these issues um, that bugged me was, again, the chronology of how long Daredevil's actually at the bottom of this, I don't know, wherever he was. Because... You know, obviously the comic was coming out every what month at this point, right? So, you know, it would have felt like a long time, and they definitely kind of play with that idea. But when you actually read it, I mean, yes, they, they imply that you know, a fair bit of time has gone by. But really, how much time would have gone by that he would not have died just lying there? <laughs> right. Also, when Mary finds him, she basically just looks down from where she knocked him over, and he's right there. So, like, how remote was this in the beginning? Well, you know, if it's a bridge without very much foot traffic, then it, chances are no one's looking over the edge for a while. I guess um, it just it just felt like when they had their big fight the first time it felt more populous of an area. Yep. And then here it just feels so remote. And and I, again, it's one of those things that I think only really sticks out when you read things in rapid succession, which is again not how they were originally meant to be consumed. Yeah. Um, and so I, it's I mean it's a nitpick. I completely fall, you know fall on the nitpick sword there that that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. But it's hard it's hard when you read it like this to not be like really he's right there like he. 
knocked him over and he was just his body was right there like she could have known he was alive like it wasn't that far and again it wasn't that long but i mean again it wants you to understand and and accept a certain disbelief and you know it, it does make you feel for the characters which i think does sell the idea of there being again that time lapse and again there being more tension um that's happening in the pages that being said i gotta say that first page of johnny storm is terrible <laughs> yeah it's kind of a weird face on him. Uh, it doesn't have the the weight, I think, of the of the lines to really uh, show show off. I don't know. It just looks a little wussy. <laughs> you know. Well, I think part of it is that again in the next page, where again even the red there doesn't even. It, it looks weird when you just have his red face. Um, whereas when you have the, the full red body, I think it just looks better. But it just looks weird to have because again his his face is red, but then you got the flames are, are yellow, and yet on that one page there's none of that redness, so you just have this weird flame. So it's just an odd artistic choice. But then if you look at the cover, it's so good. So you you look at the cover like this is an amazing Human Torch, and then you flip the page to this. Well, I think the first one is to sh- like he's not totally on fire; he's just starting to go on fire, which is why the face isn't totally red. Um, yeah, I know. But yeah, you're right. It's just uh, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting choice. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it also just doesn't look like John Romita Jr. in in no. a sense. Like it's not really kind of the way he draws his faces and such. So um, yeah, I don't know. But the rest of it is good. I mean, I thought that the art was was very nice, and I appreciate the uh, including uh, Daredevil in this and him not being on fire most of the time. Uh, you know, he tries to dress up like a biker and go into this bar to find information, and he tries to do it um, as a normal, non-powered person, like in, in a sense like Daredevil, because Daredevil doesn't have superhuman strength or anything. Um, and I like the parallels here between just uh, the way that Daredevil would do things and the way the Human Torch would do things. And it's like, no, Johnny can take on Galactus. He even says this at the at the, the end of this issue. Uh, he says, I fought Galactus. I've saved the whole blamed universe many times, yet I can't handle this world, this world, Daredevil's world. He just can't do it. <laughs> so I thought that was an interesting <laughs> observation there. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I do like the issue. I mean, and I think as much as it obviously plays Johnny for laughs at times, like when he goes into the place and he's got the I'm bad, real bad shirt, like, uh, yeah. And his slang is terrible, and like obviously, you know, they're Nicente's kind of playing a bit of that for laughs, but it's an interesting portrayal of the character, and you know, kind of getting down to a, a degree that we don't usually get to see him, yeah. uh, which is intriguing. Uh, and then one thing we see played out in this issue as well is uh, the continued kind of uh, relationship between Typhoid Mary and Kingpin, yeah. which is really interesting. And like, there's some great visuals, like when she starts making his jacket burn, and he like rips it off, and he's like, you know, implied that they're about to get down, like. You know, it's it's some you know heavy stuff. Yeah, and then you turn to page two fifty six, or sorry, two fifty two, and like they're putting their clothes back on, and the entire room is destroyed. Like the table's <laughs> broken in half, and all the plants are are on fire. Or whatever is like, wow, they really did some rough stuff there. <laughs> yeah, it's and interesting it, too as they progress the type of Mary character that she's so on top of everything. Yep, she's got she's playing everyone else, but the one person she can't really play at this point is Mary, and Mary's starting to win. And it's just interesting to see her lose control to a woman, yet it's the, all the men she can control, no, no problem. I also found it interesting that um, Kingpin's the only one in this story that in which Mary, you know, Mary goes all the way. 
and I think that's in an attempt to control him because he is probably the hardest person to control out of all the men that she tries to seduce. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she ultimately gives all of herself to the kingpin in order to to keep him under her thumb, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's a very interesting <coughs> character for sure. And then when Mary tries to, uh, yeah, when Mary tries to take over, it's just, uh, you can see Typhoid kind of slipping away and trying to gain control. So, yeah, um, it's just too bad that kind of all of a sudden she's, I mean, we'll see her in the next couple of issues and such, but she just kind of disappears. So that's too bad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Black Widow is also in this issue and that, oh, no, this is the next issue. Sorry. I'll, I'll leave no, that. No, not yet. Yep. <laughs> So this is the very beginning of Inferno. Uh, This one isn't labeled an Inferno tie-in, but we're starting to see uh, the the effects of Inferno happening around town. Like the the, the weather is getting hotter and things are starting to happen now. And so I love the slow build of the entire Inferno storyline. Uh, it whether it doesn't matter what book you read it in, it's just little things happening, and then it ramps up, and then all of a sudden it explodes, and so we get kind of the start of Inferno here. Uh, and I think we could probably go on to issue number two sixty two now. All right, two sixty two. So I'll go on record. I'm not a huge fan of these Inferno issues. Um, obviously, like the Marvel Universe was having some weird stuff happen. I feel like it got so much weirder in Daredevil than it did anywhere else. Um, even considering the Xbox themselves. Obviously, <laughs> there's demons in the order, but I think Daredevil goes a lot farther with it. And again, this issue in particular, and I think the one after it, really make me wonder like what the Comics Code Authority was even bothering with at this point. Um, because it gets pretty merciless uh, in terms of like how many people are dying. It's not really as much in this issue. I guess it's more in the next one. Um, this issue feels like John Romita Jr. kind of took some time off because there's some pages here that feel very scratched together. Um, and I think, you know, theoretically it's, you know, part of the story, but I think it's also, he was maybe burnt out or just needed some time off. Well, he Um, was getting married, it says in the next issue. That's right. Yes. Um, but that's, I mean, that's fine. Get, maybe get someone else to do the book then. And I mean, obviously they did that for the next issue, but, um, using the Black Widow here, I don't remember Black Widow knowing Karen Page. So that was weird. Um, because Karen Page left the book in the Silver Age. Um, before Black Widow and Daredevil were together. And when she comes back, Black Widow is not in the picture. And as far as I know, I, like maybe it was in the prior you know, epic collection that we don't have yet. I can't remember. But I just don't know how they know each other and they're this chummy-chumming. It just felt weird. Right. I guess I didn't realize that. I figured that they had a you know a time together as a supporting cast, but that's an interesting observation for sure. I mean, that could be wrong. Maybe in the in the again in the couple issues that Nascenti wrote before this, and I can't remember. Um, but possibly you know maybe that's where they first met. But uh, it just feels weird to kind of have her here. It's always interesting to see Natasha in this period because it's so different than the Natasha we know now because uh, they've leaned so much more heavily back into the spy phase. Whereas this is more of the superhero Black Widow phase, and the costume is very different, the hairstyle is different. I mean, right. it could almost be a different character, and I don't even think people would notice. Yeah, she certainly acts different, and uh, different especially also from the, the 70s Black Widow. Uh, she's just very confident and more of an adventurer. And I liked her in this one. I thought she had some good moments, um, especially taking care of these kids in the moment with the elevator. I thought that was great, mm-hmm. uh, great drama, a lot of fun. Yeah. 
it, it did feel like at times that Black Widow and Karen should have been more freaked out than they were. Um, uh, and I was also, I couldn't remember that, I guess, and I guess it just happened that the, the legal clinic was as destroyed as it was. Um, yeah. Now, is that a result from the big battle in the double size issue? Yeah, I'm assuming it must be, but I, I had to kind of tra- check myself and go, wait, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, I had to do that too. And I, I, I almost thought, well, is this a result of something that's happening with Inferno? Mm. Well, that's remember. the thing, right? Because it's never really that clear. And then you have all these sequences of Daredevil, and he's like, you know, basically half dead. And he has these, this crazy kind of interaction with, I guess, this, you know, machine that's been, in, you know, infected by Inferno, which, again, looks like almost like it's supposed to be like the technarchy in terms of the way it's actually portrayed, um, which was bizarre. And then you have Mary finding Daredevil in the midst of it, like Daredevil's been having all these psychic visions. And, and finally Mary shows up and he comes to realize that Mary is Typhoid Mary. And then you, you think that's like a big climactic moment, but then the next we see of him completely different situation. Yeah, that's true. Like, I feel like the book has these fits and starts where, you know, you end someplace, but you're the next one is, is so far removed. And it's like, well, what happened? Like, what was what was the connective tissue? There's something that's going on kind of in the gutters here, but they're not really bothering. And then it, it gets even worse when Daredevil leaves down. <laughs> we saw that when we were talking about the Chichester issues, um, mm. that he would do the same thing in between issues. There would be, a, you know, a certain period of time where stuff happens and then the issue kind of uh, has to take a little bit of time to tell us, to catch us up to speed of where, of where the characters are. Um, so I like on page 260, there are these uh, these really, really skinny vertical panels and it's typhoid and Mary, you know, she's talking to herself, basically. Um, I'm not sure why they didn't use the pink word balloons in this one yeah. to show typhoid. But what I did like is that um, in the panels where Mary is speaking, she's looking down because she's insecure. And then the panels where typhoid is speaking, she's looking up because she's very confident. And so it gives you a um, it gives you a visual clue as to who's talking just with the body language. So there's some really nice acting there from John Romita Jr. I also thought that there were some nice subtleties in terms of how he portrayed the hair, and maybe it was un- unintentional, but it felt like when it was Mary, the hair was a little bit more down, yep. and then when it was Typhoid, the hair was kind of behind her neck, yep, uh, like off her shoulders. And so again, they couldn't like obviously have it go straight up. So this is probably the closest they could go. Yeah, just really subtle, a little bit messy or whatever um just a kind of lifting off of her head yeah i like that it's it's nice he i think he does a really good job and then yeah these vision um issues like starting on page 261 uh where daredevil uh, starts having his visions inside his mind talking to stick uh, mm. I like that one panel on 260, or the one page on 261, where we're slowly kind of going closer and closer, like the camera's trucking in on Daredevil's face, and it's getting brighter and brighter until we get this this very weird stylistic, like it's almost too bright, you can't really see things. And I wonder if it's trying to emulate a little bit of Daredevil's radar sense or something like that. I mean, um, M- Miller had done something similar to this in his run. Yeah, then that would make sense. But yeah, I mean, if you can't see details and you uh, and you only can visualize the world through your radar sense, then this might be how it would be visually portrayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, moving on uh, to the next issue here, issue number 263. It's called In Bitterness, Not Far From Death, another Inferno issue. Uh, the city's really, really going crazy here. And, and in the in the previous issue, we kind of just saw technology starting to go kind of haywire. But now we're seeing actually people getting 
uh, getting possessed and like technology actually kind of taking over people and such. And in this issue, Mary or Typhoid, I guess, makes a deal or doesn't necessarily make a deal with Mephisto, but there's it, it's alluded to that there's already some sort of pre-existing arrangement between the two. Uh, and that's, that is a kind of a, just a weird out of the blue direction for the character that we had no idea was going to happen. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the, the first half of this book is extremely street level. And now it's like, here's Mephisto. Yeah. Very, very, um, very grounded before. And now all of a sudden, yeah. Um, and, and yeah. And so we have this huge battle that's happening sort of, it's not even in Daredevil's mind. It's like the demons have now all fully taken over New York. If you are reading X Men and New Mutants, then you kind of know what's going on. But Mephisto's here. He's not in the main book dealing with all of the stuff that's going on there. He's he's after Daredevil for some reason, and we don't even really know why he's after Daredevil. Um, but he he is. Um, I really like the end when they start. Uh, um, oh no, it's not in this issue. Oh yeah, it is this <laughs> issue. Yeah, I like in the end when he's facing off, like he's trying to save that train that's been possessed, and the panels are just getting w- really big. They're m- way way bigger and bigger. And I I just think John Romita does some really cool stuff with the action here, um, with the way he portrays the demons, the way he portrays just the fire and the the heat coming off of these things. I I like it. And there's one page, uh, one panel on page two two ninety seven where Mephisto's just like breathing out fire onto Matt, and the bottom corner is like it almost looks like Matt's kind of melting a little bit, just the way that the shading works. Mm-hmm. Because it's just, it, you can feel the heat off of it. And I think there's some really good stuff here. So it might look cool, but it doesn't make any sense. No, no, it doesn't. It's, there. yeah, there's a, yeah, what is my like this, this, this issue really? Tr- I felt that this issue really tried my, like, you know, my suspension of disbelief because it goes so crazy. And it's just like, what is happening? Like, obviously, I know Inferno. But like even in this inferno, this feels like a lot. Um, and again, just going back to the beginning of the issue, when you have Matt in the hospital room, how is he there? Like t- Mary was typhoid, and suddenly I guess she becomes Mary and brings him to a hospital. Like it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's such a big jump, but we didn't get to see it, and we just have to fill it in with ourselves. And then even Karen showing up felt weird as well. And like the whole thing is 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 just nuts. And even Karen finding out that he cheated feels weird because you know it's not it's not something that matt's a part of like he's not even he, he's there's no agency there like it's just she finds out and she runs but there's not much else like he's not he's never really held accountable and he, he later says oh she found out and she ran away but like how does he even really know that <laughs> like he was he was barely in his right mind when he said the wrong woman's name so i don't know i, I it just i found it a little bit frustrating and then it goes from there to being which is again a relatively grand place to start to just going freaking nuts well, uh, okay, so two things that I want to mention based on what you were just saying here. The the way I read this scene is that Typhoid brought Matt, I don't, don't think it's explicitly said, but, but Typhoid brought Matt to the hospital specifically so that uh, Mary and Karen could meet. Mm. And that's how which I... Is, which is fine, which yeah. is completely possible, but totally. it's never stated, so you have to read it in, and that's my problem. Like, yeah. We shouldn't have to read that much into this to make it make sense. I guess not. Yeah, you're right. But, you know, I still like the scene when Karen finds out I think it's really just really good and you can see on page 282 
Um, there's that one panel where Mary's surrounded by blackness and even her hair sort of blends into the background in the bottom there. And she's mm-hmm. just got this look. It's like when you love someone, you just know these things, darling. Is, is that Mary talking or is that typhoid talking? Like, I mean, it feels like typhoid and then the next page feels like Mary. So it's hard to tell. Which is why I think that that's kind of what tells me that typhoid is kind of orchestrating this whole thing. Kingpin has tasked her to hit Matt where it counts uh, emotionally. And so that's what she's doing here in this scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then your other point about it just going absolutely bonkers is that if you like, I think Inferno is just generally speaking a bonkers story. <laughs> and, you know, things happen in all of those tie in that are just absolutely ridiculous. Like in Excalibur, uh, Rachel Summers turns into a mannequin. Yeah, You know, there's just a it's just weird. It's it's a very, very bizarre it feels easier to accept the bonkers when it's in an X-Men book or like a, like a more superhero yeah. title. Well, it's a book, I, yeah. like Daredevil's yeah. a book that prides itself on being more street level. So it feels that much more alien and weird and creepy as opposed to being somebody kind of hand wave away because it's just part of the, you know, like Excalibur is a book that was always crazy to begin with and silly and weird. So if it does silly and weird that's things, true. you're kind of like, well, that's, that's Excalibur. Yep. Yep. That's uh, true. Well, if I ever get a chance, I, I really want to talk to Anna Senti, and I've been trying to get a hold of her and, and book and book an interview. And I am definitely going to ask her about Inferno and, you know, why she did the things that she did. How did she react to having to have Inferno inserted into her book in the first place? You know, that's mm. always an interesting story. One but, thing I'm curious about, and, and I'm, I'm noticing it more on this reread, is as a writer, she really sells Karen nothing. Like she, like Karen finds out something horrible and then she just disappears and that's it for like a long time. And we don't get to yeah. see her grapple with it. Like she's really used in like, I, I know that there's a lot of criticism, criticism level that, especially obviously male creators at the time in like 60s, 70s and 80s for not treating female characters or supporting characters with a lot of gravitas and just kind of using them at the whims of the of the male lead and not really giving them their own agency. And I, you would almost expect that, you know, a female writer might have given more you know, clarity to a character like Karen, but instead she gets nothing. And I'm kind of shocked by that, that you would think that maybe she would get a little bit more development. It's not like they couldn't have wedged it in somewhere. Even with Matt being somewhere else, you could still have kind of flashbacks to what's going on with Karen, because if you're reading a Daredevil book, the supporting cast usually does play a a fairly significant part, uh, at times a very vital part. So it's just weird that she kind of jettisons it all and just follows Matt. And I think that's intentional. Um, I think that we are supposed to feel lost, just as lost as Matt is. Uh, like, like you said it, he, they, she just leaves his entire world behind. Um, and usually in, you know, in the Tom DeFalco way of storytelling, you'll have the, the A plot, the B plot, and the C plot, and maybe even a D plot kind of running simultaneously through all of these issues. Anne doesn't do that. She did it in the no. first half of this book. But as soon as Matt decides to leave his entire world behind, we, the reader, also have to leave the entire world behind. Like, we don't get a choice. We don't get to see any of that anymore. Um, and I don't know when that's coming back. But that's a. am sure that's a, um, a device for uh, for writers as well. It's like the character goes away and when he comes back, let's see how these people have changed in his absence without us having mm-hmm. seen the progression. Um, so yeah, that'll be interesting to see when he gets back to town, whenever that's going to be. Do you want to move on to 64? Yeah, let's move on to 264. So if you have bought like the Inferno Omnibus or if you, I'm sure if there was ever like a Daredevil Visionaries and the Senti collection or whatever, um, this issue would not be in there. Because... Well, hold on, hold on. It is still by Nascenti. 
true. Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. So maybe I'm just talking about the Inferno stuff. Like, if you buy an Inferno collection, yeah. this this story's not there. This is a fill-in issue um, because, and it says so right at the top of the page that JRJR uh, got married, so he needed to take some time off, time off for a honeymoon. Mm-hmm. And who better to replace him than the legendary Steve Ditko? Who is doing lots of this type of work at the time? Um, it's interesting, actually. I, I, I'm curious if this was on the. I guess it was on the original, and it's a weird choice. If you look at the uh, the cover in the um, the character box, Daredevil has no gloves. Yeah, I saw that. But is it that he has no gloves, or someone just colored it wrong? I'm sure because... he colored it wrong. If you look at the other corner boxes in this collection, that he has the red gloves. Yeah, so it's just funny. But I part of me wondered, like. If that had been a later issue, I actually wouldn't have thought it was a mistake because then you have Daredevil kind of going off and doing his own thing and kind of not barely being himself. So then I think it actually would have been thematic. That's me trying to get a no prize. Uh, but instead, <laughs> where it is, it makes no sense. It's just someone coloring it wrong. Right, right. So this issue also at the top of the first page, it explains that this is uh, not in continuity. This is a story from the recent past um, of course, because Daredevil is in his right mind. There's no Inferno. It's just kind of an out-of-story, uh, out-of-continuity story. And it's kind of a weird one. Uh, the Owl has set up this plan to ruin the drug trade. So he, he's, fi- he's found out that... Uh, let me see if I get this straight here. Um, s- certain drug dealers are using brown paper bags in order to to do drop-offs. You know, they'll drop it off in a location, and a minute later, a person will come and pick up the cocaine in, in that bag. So he's saying in the split second when the bag is uh, just dropped off, we're going to switch it out for a bag that has a tiny, tiny bomb in it, and we're going to blow up all the cocaine, and then there will be chaos in the drug world, and I will be able to swoop in and take control. So there's that side of things. And then there's also this weird... Um, <laughs> homeless guy and a baby? Yeah, the story about this homeless guy that has found a baby in a dumpster and puts the baby in a paper bag in order to carry it somewhere. But then that ba- baby gets picked up because a guy thinks that's the cocaine. And then the, and there's this, this back and forth, like Daredevil and this homeless guy, they meet throughout the whole issue, bumping past as Daredevil tries to save the people from being blown up. And this guy thinks that his baby has been blown up. And it's just such a weird story. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's bonkers, but not in the, not in the way that the future shows will be. No, at least it is definitely more street level. That's for sure. <laughs> but it just seems weird. First of all, the homeless person's um, behavior is so strange because he's like he's just really whiny almost the entire time. And I don't know if he's supposed to be depressed or if he's supposed to be just not in his right mind. Um, but he just he just seems weird. Seems a little off. And then and in the end, Daredevil gives the guy back his baby when he finds it. And he's like, are you actually this baby's father? And the, the, the bum doesn't give him a straight answer. And Daredevil, Daredevil just is like, okay, well, you know, I'll just, I'll keep an eye on you. But like, shouldn't yeah. you send that child to social services? Whether or not it's that, <laughs> that guy's child, it's like, you don't want a baby living on the streets. Like, that's no, just, you don't. That's not the way things work. <laughs> nope. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to hit you with a number, Curtis, and I want you to guess what I'm at, what I'm talking about in in, with this particular issue, um, my number is 161. Can you figure out maybe what that would be referring to? 161? Yes. 
No, I'm afraid I can't. Probably an issue number. Nope, that's how many panels are in this. Oh, okay. You counted all those panels? As you were talking, I just counted every single panel on every page. <laughs> oh, man. Well, yeah, Daredevil... Oh, sorry, Daredevil. Um, Steve Ditko is... He loves to stick very, very close to either a six-panel or a nine-panel layout. That is kind of all that he always did that in Spider-Man. And he's doing it here too. There are even some pages like on page 113, or sorry, 313, that have uh, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Um, uh, yeah, 10, 11 panels on it. That's a yeah. lot of panels. Yeah. So, I mean, that average is out to about seven, almost seven and a half per page, which isn't that bad. But there, you know, there's some that have like one or two. So, really, some of these are super packed. Um, I yep. just was curious because, I mean, obviously it's so different from what would have been happening at the time, right? Uh, because oh, yeah. it's a very antiquated, not antiquated, that's the wrong word, but, you know, an older style uh, when you used to have more of a traditional grid. And you see a lot of that here. Well, yeah, you think about, I mean, I mentioned in the last in the last issue how I loved at the end where the panels were getting bigger and bigger when the action got bigger. Um, and there would be times when you'd have two, only two or three panels per page. So that's very cool. Uh, and then the other part of this, though, is that when, when Ditko was drawing Spider-Man and he would have this many panels on a page, there would be uh, a lot of dialogue from Stan. But Anne yes. actually, she doesn't put as much dialogue in there as Stan nearly would. So there's more room for these panels to breathe, I think, than actually in, in a typical Silver Age comic. And her curious how detailed her plot was, too. Right, yeah. Because that wouldn't have been the, the style that Steve likes to, to do with the over-detailed mm -hmm. plots. But if you go to page uh, 316 and 317, there's the kind of the climax battle with mm -hmm. the owl. Check out how many words are on that page. There is one panel on page one on mm -hmm. page 316 with words, and there's one panel just in the top corner on page 317 with words there's there're no words if this were a Dare, yeah. if this were a Stan Lee written issue Daredevil would be you'd get his inner monologue or they'd be doing funny quips at each other back and forth or there would be exposition all throughout but Anne is really letting the artwork speak for itself which is really good it is here's my question uh, given the content and the kind of the weird decision that Daredevil makes and that he doesn't really come out really having won anything and right. and it's kind of a weird kind of gray area considering that Steve Ditko did not like gray areas and liked heroes to be heroes and villains to be villains isn't it kind of weird that he worked on this book at all <laughs> I think that, um, you know, for him at this time, a job was a job. Yeah, and but that, I mean, you know what I mean? Because like, usually he had his, you know, his moral code and it just felt like this wouldn't typically have been something he would have done. But you know what? If if I could see if, if Ditko is, if there's a loose plot and Ditko is just drawing it based on a very loose outline, at the mm. end, Daredevil is the hero. He returns the baby to the baby's owner. It's not until Anne comes in and adds the dialogue where where maybe there's a little bit more of a gray area. Uh, so yeah. maybe in Ditko's mind, when he was penciling it, there was no gray area. Um, I would love to uh, have someone who loves continuity bring back this baby, <laughs> yeah. this child. <laughs> Our, uh, years later, see how how he's grown up. I mean, considering Daredevil's life, he would probably have a vendetta against Daredevil for letting him be raised by a bum. Uh, yeah. Um, 
The other interesting part is the first few pages here where these hooligans, I guess the hired oh goons, God, they're like laughing at Owl because the Owl is such an outdated character. And like, I get their point. I get the point maybe that Anne is trying to make also is like the way he's dressed, his motivations is over the top, um, overly dramatic, just speech and everything about him is so Silver Age. And we're now in the Bronze Age. And these hooligans are like, get with the times, man. You are so old-fashioned and I, I i like that comparison it just comes off a little cringy because all they're doing is kind of laughing at him the entire time oh yeah and, and and again the uh the the way in which they look they're like it's just it's just bonkers like it's just i, I don't really like it the the expressiveness <laughs> of the characters as like one guy with his tongue out like it just looks it just looks silly to be honest yeah and that's kind of where Ditko was at in this era as well. I mean, he, I don't, I, this is not my favorite period of Steve Ditko artwork for sure. <laughs> no, it's not. Are you ready to move on to 265? I yes, I, I guess we have talked about that issue for a long time. Uh, <laughs> 265, it's called We Again Beheld the Stars. And we are back into Inferno. And at this point in the book, I feel like, and I'm not sure if this is how they look in the original issues, but the, the lines are a lot thicker in these issues now than they were in the yeah. first few issues. And I don't know if that's because of however they were scanning the material, they just got, uh, you know, a heavier a heavier line. No, my, my recollection of having, I have these original issues somewhere, and my recollection is that it's very on point. Okay, I like this. I think that the heavier lines give the artwork a lot more weight and give it a lot more just depth, I guess, than the, this, than the ultra-thin lines that we've seen in the first half of this book. Mm. I gotta say, I hate this issue. <laughs> you hate the issue oh because of yeah well, let, okay go ahead I, I i should dial it back it's not even it, i there are i do not like jrjr's demons in general i just i don't like his designs i don't like his use like the the teeth the weirdness like i just find a lot of it uh, I don't enjoy it. I, I find some of the over-the-top over grotesqueness a little much. I do like his Daredevil, like Daredevil with kind of all bandaged up here. Like, I think that looks cool. There's certain elements here that work. Um, there's just some things I really don't like, and I, I don't really like the way he has the demons possessing people. I just don't like the art. <laughs> I, I don't like the design work. That's interesting because I think these designs are fairly on point with just the way the demons look in general in this storyline. Doesn't matter which book you pick. I think they're a little, they're a little bit extra JRJR here because oh, I mean sure. JRJR's demons and dragons look a certain way, yep. and generally this is the way they look. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, personal opinion, of course, you're allowed to, to like that. I personally, th you're allowed to, you're not, oh, sorry, you're allowed to not like that. Uh, I personally think it looks great. And um, I, it's, I think it fits. If you put all of these Inferno issues from all of the different books together, I think that it would be consistent. It would look fine. But, but yeah, reading them in this collection, I can see them definitely standing out. It's very bizarre. Um, in fact, it reminds me a lot of ghosts that you would see in the Ghostbusters cartoon mm. that's uh where i think a lot of the this look and that, that would be a contemporary show uh around the, actually it probably is ended by this point 1989 but it would have been right around this time when that all of that was popular i do I, again there are shots here of daredevil that are among the my favorites in this volume like they're like that first shot establishing shot of daredevil when he's on top of the guy's truck and he's just standing there like that's a extremely on model but badass looking daredevil he's got the yep. you know, the bandage on his chin on his uh, wrapping on one of his uh 
his fists and then you know they're wrapping on one of his legs like he looks awesome there he looks like you do not want to mess with this guy yeah yeah totally daredevil now he he's out of the hospital and he's now a very different person he's cold he's he's kind of ruthless he speaks very very few words he doesn't acknowledge the people around him um he's just going in and like busting up these demons and so he's going through something for sure and it's interesting to see the progression of him uh, through these next few issues of how he conducts himself and what he decides to get involved in and what he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I find inconsistent is, you know, first of all, his costume, because, like, you know, his, his, his entire home was destroyed, right? And the legal clinic was destroyed. Yeah, in this issue, he's got a costume. Um, and then in future issues, he gets hurt, he gets damaged, and then he ends up with, a, like, a brand new costume without any rips in it. So I'm kind of <laughs> curious, like... You know, he doesn't have unstable molecules. He's wandering this, you know, wandering the country, and yet somehow his costume's always in pretty good shape. One of the mysteries of comics, I guess. I guess so. Uh, what did you think of this random guy who was in his apartment, and all so of his weird. stuff disappears? Yeah, I don't know what the point of that was. He decides to leave, and he goes yeah. driving down the street. Then his car gets ruined, and he has to. He takes a helicopter, and he just wants to get out of New York City. And we're following him around, but there's no payoff. We don't see him leave. Nope. We don't see him get possessed, or he doesn't meet up with Daredevil. There's just no purpose for that character at all. Very strange. I I didn't understand that at all. Yeah, I don't know why they bothered. Yeah. Are we sure it's the same guy? Uh, maybe, maybe it's not. Yeah, actually, maybe it's I mean, not I the guess... same guy. This guy has a very distinct mole on his cheek, which I guess I don't, I, I don't see it on that other guy in the the no, apartment. No, which, which makes it even weirder that there's no payoff to that story. Then there's no payoff to either of the stories. There's no payoff to the the guy in the <laughs> the apartment or the guy that's trying to escape town. Um, very, I don't know, just kind of odd pacing. Um, I'm, I'm actually I'm actually surprised that the guy with the mole when he gets in the cab I'm surprised he even like lived like there's a demon driving that cab. Yeah, he got there. That's right He might be the only person who survived an inferno taxi cab <laughs> Yeah, I know you, you there are pictures here where it's like you see people like legs sticking out of the grill of a car like they've obviously been eaten by a vehicle and it's like this guy got in there and survived. So I don't quite understand. I don't but, know. Um, I do like the very ending as well. I do like, I don't know, like in and of itself, you could almost have it in any issue of Daredevil, not necessarily an Inferno one, but just Daredevil sitting down to have a beer, the guy offering him a toast and saying to the greatest city of the world and Daredevil smiling like that actually feels very Daredevil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it that that's funny. And I, I also like how they wrap up Inferno as well. It's like all of this stuff has been happening in the background and over the radio. We we just hear, okay, it's over now, basically. <laughs> yeah. And it's weird that we go from, you know, it was it was summer, it was hot, and then next issue two sixty six, it's Christmas again. But it's the same like it's a day or two later. That is weird. Now I did have a question about that in uh on issue two sixty six on the cover it says May. So it's it's not even anywhere close close to Christmas that this issue is coming out. No. And we've already had a Christmas issue in this volume. It was the first issue here, which had a cover date of April. So I know that the cover dates are not the same as the actual dates because the cover date is an indication for people uh, who are selling these comics when they can start sending them back to Marvel. Yeah. So they, if they get it in February, then they can send them back. They can sit on the shelf until May and then they can send them back to May. Um, was it always two months or was it sometimes four months is it possible it must have been four months 
because it's because the first one was April. I never thought that it was that far ahead. I always thought it was two or three months. Yeah, and then I, I thought so too. I thought I always thought it was two, but yeah, it doesn't make sense that we're having another you know Christmas issue considering that it's you know uh, cover date in May. So that must be what it was. Now I figured that this one was supposed to come out in April, but we had the Ditko fill in because yes. Ramita got. Six. So I, I'm guessing it was just happened to be later, but still yeah. it seems seems so far removed. But yeah, in this issue, um, it's called A Beer with the Devil. And Daredevil is still in that bar drinking his beer. And uh, and then he gets uh, confronted by this woman who comes into the bar who tempts him to do a few different things. Um, and uh, we find out later that this woman is actually Mephisto in disguise. So we're not done with the Inferno-type stories yet. This stuff is going to stick around for a little while longer. Yeah, well, I mean, I would say Mephisto is very different than just your typical Inferno story. It's interesting. I really like this issue. Um, I, I, again, do not like JRJR's depiction of Mephisto whatsoever. Uh, I've just, I've never liked it. Um, it is weird. Again, the issue, and the issue kind of doesn't make any sense because, I mean, I like it. It's interesting. It's tense. But at the same time, what was the point of the issue at all? Like, Mephisto just comes and messes with Daredevil's mind and then just pieces out? Like, that's basically it. So there's something in the uh, the final Mephisto appearance in this issue, in the last issue. He says something that clues us into why he's been popping up a little bit. And I'll point it out when we get there. Um, oh, yeah. So, But, I mean, at the time when you're reading it, like, yeah, right. maybe, you know, it was part of something grander later. But it's just weird that in and of itself, it's just kind of like, it's just kind of there. Yeah, it is. You're right. And, like, and like yeah. upsetting stuff happens. And you almost kind of wish maybe it didn't really happen, but, it, like, it really did happen. Like, these two brothers get into this big fight because of Mephisto's, obviously, his influence. But it's really, like, heartbreaking that it doesn't get fixed, doesn't get resolved. Like, it's, a, it's kind of brutal. It is, and those characters are just there to uh, to play with the fact that Matt doesn't know what's going on around him. Um, I love the beginning of this issue. I love it to, to pieces, just the first like four pages, because it feels like a movie is starting. Like we get this great splash page of a choir singing at Rockefeller Center, like the skating the skating rink there, and you turn the page. Yeah. And it's just each panel is a snapshot of winter of Christmas in New York. And it goes to like shoppers walking down the street to a a vendor with uh, roasting chestnuts and um, a snowman. And, you know, just and then you go to the next page and it focuses in on this the, the window of the bar and then the camera trucks in slowly panel by panel till we get like a shot of what it, what we can see through the window. I just think it's just so beautifully uh, portrayed it's it's it makes you feel good about christmas in new york and it just feels like a movie and then you turn the page or at the bottom of that page i guess it says stanley presents then you turn the page and then we get daredevil not doing very well nursing a beer like it's the total contrast of what the first mm-hmm. three pages have told us about christmas in new york and we're with all of these people now who are also depressed they hate the season and it's just a, a great great opening i really like it oh yeah and like and and i do like the nascenti plays with certain things like when mephisto enters the bar and you have the one guy being like oh that some someone took my seat and he's like hey buddy that's mine he kind of looks and you don't see anything you just see him looking at it and realize, and like getting like white and and, and very like afraid and just, yeah does not come back and it's such a great way of setting the mood and having alerting the reader that something is amiss with this woman yeah something's something's off daredevil doesn't know it yet something's really weird and wonky with this picture 
And the one that I didn't notice, and I had to look at it later, is on page 256, uh, sorry, 356, 357, where this guy comes over and is going to look at the woman, but then the woman turns around and it's actually a man. Mm. And then, again, the guy's face goes white. And I didn't clue in, like, I had no idea that this was Mephisto. I had no idea mm. when I was reading this the first time. Until until the big reveal at the end, and then I went back and looked at these these uh, images again, and it's like, oh yeah, he's a shapeshifter. That uh, that's what that scene meant um, with, mm-hmm. with with that other guy with the other face. So yeah, <laughs> really interesting stuff. Um, I think yeah, I I liked this issue. I thought it was it was quite good. Just uh, yeah, just so it, it doesn't necessarily move the story along that much. Like it's again, it's it's kind of a it's a weird one, um, but I like it a lot. Um, but again, it doesn't really move Matt. Mur- story along that much further from where we saw him in the issue before and it's really not until the next issue where we get to see a lot more of that progression so in this issue as well here uh, on page 264 Mephisto says um how he has enjoyed watching everything fall apart for Matt and he's been sitting back and laughing at it and it's like sooner or later you're going to realize that you need my help and you're going to come to me so maybe that's his purpose here is just giving him a warning of like you know I'm here if you need me Matt you just got to say the word and I will make Mm. everything better for you Um, much like Satan is uh, known to do so there you go there's a Merry Christmas issue for you oh yeah it makes me all warm inside yeah (laughs) Okay, 267. Yeah, so in this we uh, we have more bullets. So we have Daredevil really kind of considering that he should, you know, run away and leave everything behind. He goes and visits uh, Sister Maggie. He ends up giving his confession uh, to a priest. Uh, then he kind of meets up with the kids who know him. So not the kids who know him, the uh, bullet son. He looks inside and kind of sees what his son, uh, bullet son is doing to kind of uh, you know, instead of playing uh, like a kid, he's like preparing for fallout in a war and, and protection. And then Bullet shows up, they have a big battle. Um, and the kid's just trying to get them to stop because, you know, Daredevil st- uh, helped him from being beaten up by these kids. And then they kind of part on terms, and Daredevil kind of burns everything that ever mattered to him and uh, takes off. And that's it. Yeah. Now, his apartment already was burned, though, right? Like, it was already burned. Well, yeah, destroyed. that's the thing, right? Like, we thought it was all kind of burned before, but I guess not enough of this stuff was destroyed. Now we can destroy the rest. I don't I even remember that, when that, it burned. At the end of the issue, yeah, I mean, it was, I guess, Inferno or during that final battle. I forgot to mention that when he does leave town, he ends up jumping off of, I guess, the train and finding, like, a, a plane that's gone down. So, you know, he can't help himself. He has to keep putting himself into these weird situations and, and investigating. And even that doesn't go anywhere. It feels like it might going in going somewhere and a, a new direction but it even you know that's not where it's going i was confused by that too because the guy get, at the end gives him a card that says here go over to brandy's gently killed chicken farm and, and she'll help you out and in the next issue that's not where he ends up um no he uh i mean i i peeked ahead a little bit to heart of darkness and some of this stuff does play out a little bit later so we'll get to see that but um what yeah this in- issue was interesting because there's actually a lot that happens in this issue it's packed full of different things and different moments it's not like it's just all about bullet like it says on the cover the the bullet part is actually just a very small moment and it's kind of the catalyst that that sends him on his journey uh, to, to going off on his own uh, it was nice to see this kid again. We met him a few issues back uh, because he was preparing for uh, nuclear fallout. <laughs> 
and very uh, 80s yep and so now seeing the relationship between bullet and the kid kind of changed daredevil's mind as to how he wants to tackle bullet as well i thought that was interesting um bullet is just a paid mercenary it's nothing personal so he doesn't daredevil doesn't have to doesn't feel the, that he needs to kill him over it um but uh so yeah he goes off, and then we're led into the next issue, which is issue number 268, called Golden Rut. And in this issue, like I said, he goes. Uh, Matt has found a room, not the person in the chicken farm, but this woman rents him a room, and apparently her husband is like an enforcer. He shakes down people for money that they owe him, that is owed to the mob or something. But the husband wants to get out of the business. So this story is really not a daredevil story, but it's about this guy uh, trying to figure out how he exactly he's going to sever his ties with the mob and make a new life for himself. Yeah, it's it's not a bad story. It's just not a, really a daredevil story per se. Um, but it's not a bad kind of story. And I guess, it, you know, it, it's Andesenti kind of examining morality and, you know, the decisions people make. So it's more about people as opposed to about superheroes. As you said before, she's not necessarily one for all the superhero trappings. Yeah. Um, when you when you get to the end of the issue and you have Matt Murdock walking away, you could just pipe in the the uh, the Hulk TV series Sad Walking Away music. Like <laughs> yeah, it's, right. I mean, and it kind of follows that structure, you know. Man walks into town, you know, ends up getting involved with something, even if not everyone knows about it, fixes a problem, and then takes back to, back, back to the road. That is exactly what happens in this issue and the next issue. Uh, and even the one after that, like that is is how these next few issues are structured. It's interesting to note also that Daredevil and Matt Murdock seem to be two separate personalities in this. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if they're trying to do the whole like a typhoid Mary type of thing, but... Dare, uh, Matt Murdock through this entire thing and one of the think purposes of his road trip is that he is not getting involved with anybody or anything like he is staying clear of all of that he is going to be only reliant on himself and not get involved with anybody's personal problems now that all already uh, got ruined when he saved that guy in the plane in the previous issue but in this issue mm -hmm. he sits down in his room and decides to just keep to himself and then the next thing you know Daredevil is fully in costume eavesdropping on the husband uh, talking to his brother who is I guess his boss as well and getting involved it's and then they flop back and forth between Matt scenes and Daredevil scenes and it's as if they're not talking to each other the dialogue the stuff mm -hmm. in in Matt's inner monologue is all I'm not getting involved and then Daredevil when he's fully in costume is totally involved it's it's as if the Daredevil side of him is kind of running on autopilot mm. I'm distracted by the fact that I keep thinking of the littlest hobo. He's the blindest hobo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. it's, 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 it's interesting because, I mean, Daredevil is a character, not now, but later on, I think just before Chichester, I'm trying to remember, he does have a bit of a, a, um, a memory thing and kind of a, a dissociative, you know, who is he type of thing, uh, which actually ends up, I believe, it's been a long time. One of my favorite uh, fights where actually I won't, I won't spoil it. It's, it's pretty awesome when it happens. Um, but that's like much later. It's a, it's an, a, in an epic. We don't have yet last rights. Right. Um, but yeah, it's interesting how, like, I don't think that necessarily is what's going on here, but it's an interesting distinction to make about how they are kind of operating as two separate people. And that maybe that's very much intentional. Although I feel like the next issue makes it feel less like that. Although no, it's it, mostly yeah. Daredevil centric. I was going to say that it it's, 
that whole thing is only specifically for this issue because in the next one, um, it's very different because Matt is the one who walks into town and purposely gets involved in a way that will affect what he does in Daredevil. As Daredevil, I mean. Okay, so, uh, oh, I just also want to mention that issue has a couple of pink pages, which I thought was an interesting visual touch. Yeah, I wonder, I, I can't remember, I can't remember what it looked like on actual newsprint, because I feel like it would, uh, it, I, I, it could not have looked that good, because I feel like on newsprint, it would have looked even more faded, yep. and it wouldn't have looked as, like, I think the contrast between some of the characters wouldn't have worked as much, and I think it would have been muddied. But I, I mean, I don't remember what it looks like on newsprint. I don't either. I don't think I've ever seen these issues. It would definitely would be not as bright um, because the ink would have soaked into the paper a lot, but uh, it still would have been visually striking in the because, uh, well, it would be all one solid color. <laughs> hey, well, exactly. It's kind of weird. Um, so issue 269, it's very of its time in battle with the mutant menace of the Blob and Pyro. But at the time they weren't the mutant menace, they were part of the government. Although the way they act here, you would think that they weren't. Well, yeah, I mean, they still acted this way, even though they like if you saw them in X Factor or whatever, they were still acting like jerks. That's just kind of who they are. Yeah, but that was more because they were being jerks to X Factor and not necessarily because like the, in the I can't remember, but isn't don't they help train John Walker in the Captain America issues? And I feel like there they were portrayed as being like, you know, stable government agents. Well, I don't know. I haven't really read any issues where they are really stable government issues. Like when Mystique was in charge of Freedom Force, she had problems keeping them in line. Like it was, they were always kind of butting heads. Mm. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Like I, I think obviously a lot of it does come down to who's writing it yep. and who decides to make them a certain way. It just felt like the Senti went almost over the top to make them this much of a buffoon. And these, uh, that being said, they're drunk half the time. So who's to know? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. That has something to do with it. So anyway, yeah, these two mutants come to town. Spiral, actually, Spiral from Mojo-verse, or Mojo World. Uh, She sends them to pick up a mutant that is in a small town, and they want this mutant to register. This is also a period of the Mutant Registration Act, so this is kind of right up Anacenti's alley, talking about government-enforced registration and all this kind of stuff. It's not a surprise that she would try to tackle this issue here. And so Daredevil, uh, because it's an allegory for refugees, right? Yeah. Un- undocumented immigrants, which um, I, I don't know what, what her leanings are exactly here. But in this one, it's like, you no, know, Daredevil is trying to protect this undocu- undocumented mutant. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's an interesting issue. I mean, I again, I think it's 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 a pretty good Daredevil story overall. I mean, again, it's the same general formula. He comes into town and helps solve a problem, but there's a lot more fisticuffs this time. Um, I really liked the Daredevil versus like Blob fight. I thought it was entertaining, and I thought uh, what I really thought was interesting was issue four, sorry, page four thirty six, where you have a shot of Blob, you know, trying to punch, and you have uh, Daredevil jumping over him and, and poking him in the eyes. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of juggernaut versus spider-man in terms of how you know when jrjr did it uh you had juggernaut running forward you had spider-man kind of jumping and doing the same type of um uh like outlines of him moving so fast uh, over his body it really reminded me of that style 
Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a it's a neat fight, and it's nice to just get some variety as well because we've just been dealing basically with mobsters or mobster type um, villains as well. Mm -hmm. So to get some uh, mutant action in here with some people with powers is kind of a just a nice change. Well, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time because uh, there was a fall of the mutants tie-in as well in uh, in uh, Daredevil, uh, which is earlier than the epics we're reading, and again also Inferno. So she was obviously very connected to the X office and bleeding into the X universe in terms of their tie-ins. Right. Yeah, true. Um, I was mentioning before uh, Freedom Force training with uh, with uh, John Walker. I believe it was Captain America 333, if you want to check that out. Okay. Okay, so in this issue at the very end, the girl, the mutant girl who Daredevil is saving, this last, the last few panels here, it's a sunset, and there's three kind of just static panels as you can see Matt Murdock walking away in the background into the sunset, and the girl doesn't know that that's Daredevil, and she says, who was that courageous man referring to Daredevil? Who is, who is the Daredevil? Why did he have to enter my life only to walk out of it? After meeting him, everyone else seems pale. Daredevil enriches the lives of the people that he meets and saves. Mm. And this is a constant theme that we've actually seen throughout this book. Um, it's like he enriched Mary's life to the point where she could actually start to stand up against typhoid. Um, he enriched the, uh, um, I think, Bullet's son, and he enriched the uh, all of the people at the um, what was his name Tyrone in the in the alley because of the way he acted, and it's just yeah. this is uh, something you can't help it. And in this instance, Daredevil's not even trying to do that. He just walks into town, gets involved in something, and leaves. He people can't help but be attracted to the way that he conducts himself. I think that's kind of a cool trait that they were trying to bring out here in Daredevil. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, a little artistic thing to note on uh, page 421. Uh, it's the first time in a little while where we've had a clean shave in Matt Murdock. That's true. Yes, the uh, last issue there was a lot of stubble on that guy. So it's just interesting. Like I, I, at some point he found a razor, uh, yeah, and he was able, able to shave his face, and so he looks a little bit more, you know, classic hero here. Um, which is interesting because, again, we weren't getting that before. Um, and then I can't remember right off the top of my head, but I think next issue, does the stubble return? or No, it's, it's clean shaven again. Yeah, that's right. Uh, do you want to talk about issue 270? Yeah, this is the final issue we're going to talk about in this episode. This one's called Blackheart, and this is an introduction to a brand new character created by Anasenti and JRJR. And um, I love the opening here. It starts off like a horror movie. There's just a hill where a girl dies. And after that, bad things happen on the top of this hill. It's just a normal grassy hill, but it gets overgrown with thorny vines and, and whatever. And just it, you get the sense that if people go there, they end up dying. We don't mm -hmm. know why. And then a few pages in, out of the ground bursts Blackheart. And Blackheart has been called forth by Mephisto to take out Daredevil. And so that's where the action is. Um, at, a, at an abandoned mu amusement park, Daredevil faces off against Blackheart. And passing by in a bus is Peter Parker, sees this going on and says, oh, I guess I better stop and help. So we have a guest appearance by Spider-Man. Years before, JR would eventually become a regular penciler for Spider-Man. Uh, you mean years, well, before and after. Because, I mean, he'd already done Amazing Spider-Man by this point. Really? He had? Oh, I guess, yeah, because he was doing that around the wedding issue. Yeah, and, and he'd done it before that because, again, he was doing with the Roger Stern run in the kind of mid-80s. Holy cow, uh, I forgot. He, man, he worked on Spider-Man for so long. Oh, yeah. Off yeah, and on again. Oh, for sure, yeah, because he was, he was doing basically issues, what, 220 to like 250 or something like that of that's Amazing right, Spider-Man. Right. So 
That's why I brought up the juggernaut because that he'd already done that before this. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I was thinking that that was after, but no, that is way before. Man, yeah. And then uh, when when did he stop working on Spider-Man? Was uh, Yeah, well, the after Daredevil, after Daredevil, I guess he was back on X-Men. Um yep. and then he did Uncanny X-Men for a while, and then he was back on like Punisher and Daredevil and all sorts of stuff. And he did do a lot of Spider-Man in the mid-90s. Um and then it didn't really stop until I guess the late 2000s uh, or mid 2000s. Um, but like he, because he did a lot of stuff on like Peter Parker, Spider-Man. He's right. the one who did the last chapter of um, of the Clone Saga in Revelations Part Four and Spider-Man seventy-five. So like he's 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 been associated with the character for a long time. Right, and he did the nine eleven issue and all of that Straczynski stuff. Yeah. Oh, I, I one one crack I forgot to make was that we have that issue with Dare of uh, a few issues ago with Steve Ditko, and the issue after it, you got a Ramita following him. That's usual. <laughs> yeah. That is, that's funny. Uh, okay, so this issue here, um, I feel like it was just basically a battle. There's really nothing to Blackheart's character except that he looks cool until you get to the very last page. I was surprised at the last page because we go through this whole issue and it's just a battle and there's there's nothing to be said. The character doesn't speak at all and then he just disappears. And then yeah. in the last page, the narration Don't says... Don't worry, he'll be back. Yeah, I'm sure he will. But uh, the narration says... Um, the bristling, tortured Blackheart crumples on the hill. This, this, this is the evil hill. Uh, collapsing, melting, sinking into the ground. He cries out in anger to his absent father. Why was he brought forth? Why was he forced to, into being in this dark, cruel world? He does not want this. He, own, uh, he does not want this, his own birth. He does not want to live. He just wants to suffer, to die. He joins the brares and bristles and roses and thorns of this earth and hopes his father will forget him and let him rest in peace. It's like, wow, that's kind of cool. So he's like... He he doesn't want to exist, but Mephisto is forcing him to do his thing. And uh, and I thought that added a nice dimension to the character, to otherwise a kind of a pointless character. Yeah, and again, the, the character gets used later. So, I mean, uh, Nesenti maybe had ideas already of what she would do yeah. uh, going forward. For sure. um, it's interesting that for a long time before I read these issues... Um, you know, the reason why I knew Blackheart was because he was in Marvel vs. Capcom 2. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> I, I know Blackheart only because of the Marvel trading cards. Blackheart is not used very often at all. No, so this not might at all. be This might be actually the first issue that I've actually read of a Blackheart story. Well, I mean, it was his first appearance, so it's a good one to, to make it. I guess so. so. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, final impressions of the overall book. Do you have a favorite issue? Um, probably, well, I don't know. It's hard to think about it because now we've, we've broken it up into two such distinct uh, portions. Um, in the latter half that we've talked about today, I think it's Daredevil in a Bar. I yep. think that's probably my favorite. In the first half, I mean, it's probably the the Punisher issue. It's so strong. Yeah, I would probably agree with you on both of those things. Both of those are excellent issues, and they really make the book. I'm glad that they're spaced out as well, and you have one in each half to give you a highlight yeah. on both sides. Awesome. Well, you know what? We're going to keep on going and we're going to return next week with uh, the first half of the next epic collection, volume 14, which is called Heart of Darkness. And this is going to deal with an, um, a story that carries through the Acts of Vengeance era of Marvel. So it's interesting because if COVID hadn't happened and we had recorded these issues, I guess Last Rites would have almost been in our hands.
hands and we could have done that right afterwards. That's true. Yeah, we probably could have. Um, and maybe when that volume comes out, we should just quickly get that one on the books since we have all of these uh, <laughs> issues, these all, all of these other ones already recorded. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love Last Rites. I'm really excited for that. Good. Yeah, you've, you've spoken highly of it in a number of times. So I'm excited to get to that one too, to hear your thoughts on that excellent story. Like even, even, even everything leading up to it, like it's such a, I think it really pulls things together. It does go more street level. It gets away from the banana stuff that we're about to get into more, you know, get, it gets, gets away from, you know, genetically modified humans and, and inhumans and, and ultrons and oh my. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Well, you know, that's what the fun of the epics is you get to have the 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 whole story, the the best parts and the the weirdest most offbeat <laughs> stuff as well. That so. is that is very true. Like as you said, that Dicko story probably would have, you know, remained not uh not uh, collected anywhere else if it wasn't for the epics. Yeah. Except maybe uh, Marvel reprinting everything that Ditko ever did for them in one big omnibus or something. I think that'd be a gi- like a series of giant omnibuses. He did a lot of material. <laughs> that's true. Okay, well, you know what? Let's wrap it up here. Uh, don't forget to check out Adam's podcast of his own, Comic Shenanigans. And uh, you can check us out on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter, Epic Marvel Podcast. And also check out our Epic Collection group by searching for Epic Collections on Facebook. You won't be disappointed. And uh, until next time, uh, we see everybody. Thanks for listening and uh, enjoy reading more Daredevil. Daredevil.